Just a quick shout out to a fellow OBGYN physician at our institution who sent me this article that was the impetus for this podcast episode. So Dr. Katie Brading, thank you for sending the article and for your podcast idea. It's a great one. Always great to work with you, Katie. Keep up the great work. I've said this next phrase many, many times in past episodes, and it's actually the tagline to this podcast. Medicine moves real fast. One of the areas where that absolutely applies is in the understanding of fetal alcohol syndrome, or FAS. Fetal alcohol syndrome occurs when a fetus is exposed to alcohol before birth. And according to the CDC's website, quote, alcohol in the mother's blood passes to the baby through the umbilical cord. There is no known safe amount of alcohol during pregnancy or when trying to get pregnant, end quote. That phrase is right out of the CDC. But doesn't it take two people to contribute to the pregnancy? That's how I learned my biology. <laughs> And while FAS, fetal alcohol syndrome, has historically been looked at only through the lens of the mother, we are now learning that paternal exposure to alcohol, yeah, the father's alcohol use during the preconception period, is also linked to altered fetal neurodevelopment. And this isn't just in neurodevelopmental outcomes like behavioral issues. This actually has some true morphological changes as well, true physical changes that happen because of the father's alcohol use during the prairie conception period. There's brand new data that's out of our institution, which is Texas A&M University, and this is now adding to data that actually started back in the late 1980s and 1990s. The key word here is epigenetic changes. Now, we've covered epigenetics in past episodes, but in this episode, I want to focus specifically on FAS because this isn't just, as we've just stated, an issue with neurodevelopment and behavioral issues in the offspring, but this has now been shown to be linked to true physical abnormalities in the child. We've got lots to cover, so let's focus on FAS and paternal ETOH use. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Dr. Gatan, how are you? Doing well. So, quick question for you. You've heard of FAS. What is FAS? FAS? Yes. Oh, you're killing me. Fetal? Alcohol syndrome. Excellent. All right. So, fetal alcohol syndrome, which is now called FASD. Don't drop the ball so early in the game. <laughs> which is fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So, everything's changed, right? Now, I learned FAS. You obviously did too. But it's now FASD. Fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Fine. Okay, Dr. Gadan, so what do we tell our patients to avoid in order to not have their child affected with FASD? Alcohol. Okay, alcohol. And who do we tell that to? Pregnant patients. Okay, pregnant patients. Right. So that's the idea. Since 1981, when the U.S. general called this a crisis, we've now addressed maternal alcohol consumption for FASD, yes? Yes. Yeah, no trick questions. 
That's half of the issue. There's a researcher here at Texas A&M University who has helped lead this charge that paternal changes because of epigenetic sperm changes also give FASD. So is that unfortunate or what? So the mother could not touch a drop of alcohol in pregnancy. Child is affected. Why? Because it takes two to play the game. So we now know that sperm epigenetic changes can lead to FASD. What do you think? That's very interesting. All right. So we're going to cover that in this episode. I think I gave Dr. Gaetan some anxiety, so I moved on to another resident. <laughs> so I'm obviously in clinic, uh, but uh, these guys are great. Jordan, you know I'm messing with you, right? Yeah. No, man, you did great. But I'm with Dr. Shriver, and I want him to read something to you because this just really shows, wow, I mean, how crazy this is. So some of you have known this, some of you may not have, but this was a legit thing. Look how far we've come in our understanding about alcohol. So Dr. Shriver, read, about, read this sentence from this article, and I'll tell you where this article is coming from in just a minute. Go ahead. So treatment with low-dose intravenous infusion of ethanol is a cheap, efficacious, and low-risk method to stop preterm uterine activity and is clinically useful for prevention of preterm birth. Now, did y'all get that? Intravenous alcohol is great for tocolysis. How crazy. And this wasn't like 1950s, by the way. This is legit. I'm looking at it right here in PubMed in the American Journal of Perinatology, a very well-respected journal, 1989. It's even more unbelievable when you put it into perspective that in 1981, remember that the then U.S. Surgeon General had already given the warning about maternal alcohol use during pregnancy. But if you even go a little bit further back from this publication, listen to this. Again, crazy stuff that we used to do uh, because we just didn't know any better. In 1977, the public health guideline from the NIH, guys, the National Institute of Health, the same NIH that's around today, said that during pregnancy, there was a per-day limit of two alcoholic drinks per day. Per day! So I want to read this exactly from the, from the wording so I don't missay it or misrepresent it. Public health guidelines issued by the National Institute of Health in 1977 suggest and call for a two-drink-per-day limit for pregnant women. According to the CDC, fetal alcohol syndrome, or FAS, is now best described as FASD. That's fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And the reason they throw in that word spectrum is because it really is a very broad catch. It's a very broad group of diagnoses. That's why tracking the true incidence of this is difficult because some cases may be missed. Some are found earlier on in childhood and some aren't found until elementary school or sometimes even later on in early teenage years. But as a group, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder represents a group of conditions that can occur in a person who is exposed to alcohol before birth. These effects can include physical problems and problems with behavior and learning. If we could graph FASD as a timeline moving from left to right, that line would be pretty long. I mean, there's a lot of different physical and behavioral and neurodevelopmental changes, a lot of different phenotypes that could fit in into this spectrum disorder, hence the term spectrum. An individual with FASD might have low body weight, poor coordination, hyperactivity behavior, difficulty with attention, 
poor memory. They may have difficulty in school, learning disabilities, speech, and language delays. They may have poor reasoning and judgment skills. They could have altered vision and hearing problems. They could be shorter than average height. They may have a smaller head size. They may have some phenotypic changes to the face. They have abnormal faces. So you see that there's this long list of items, and that makes the true incidence, as we've already stated, the true prevalence of this kind of difficult to, to pinpoint. And because medicine does move fast, even the term FASD is a catch-all. I mean, if you think of it, it's like the big umbrella on a baby's mobile uh, that has little toys hanging from it, right? The little thing that spins. FASD is the master banner. It's the master umbrella. And then underneath that, you have all these little things that are hanging on it and spinning around. I mean, you've got fetal alcohol syndrome, true FAS. You have A-R-N-D, which is alcohol-related neurodevelopmental disorder. You've got A-R-B-D, alcohol-related birth defects. You have N-D-P-A-E, that's neurobehavioral disorders associated with prenatal alcohol exposure. All of these different diagnoses or subclassifications fall under the master diagnosis of FASD. Because there's so many different phenotypes and it requires an accurate diagnosis, it's hard to actually say how many people have FASD in the U.S. Several different approaches have been used to estimate how many people are living with FASD in the population. FASD includes several diagnoses, as we've already stated, and that makes finding the true number difficult. In general, for the U.S., the CDC estimates that it's about one infant with FASD for every 1,000 live births. You're like, okay, one per thousand, I can deal with that. But wait a minute, based on some school records, right? Remember I said that some are not diagnosed until later on in school. Using assessments of school-age children in several U.S. communities, reports of high as six to nine per thousand have been identified. So you have this general, like for the country of one per thousand, but in some areas of the U.S., it can be as high as six to nine per 1,000 children. And just to make it just that much more confusing, if you go six per nine per thousand, eh, okay, I can still, I mean, I don't want that, but, but I can accept that. Wait, it gets worse because according to the NIH, so the National Institute of Health and their studies, including U.S. and other Western European countries, that number can be as high as one to five per 100 school children. In other words, one to five percent of the population. So we just went from one per thousand to six to nine per thousand to one to five per hundred. That just tells you just how broad this is. And it depends how people are making the diagnosis and or missing the diagnosis. So it's a very large spread. So if somebody ever asks you, what's the, the percentage or what is the, the, the incidence, the prevalence of FASD in the population? Just say, Yes, because it's so hard to figure out. There's so many variances. At the least, it's one per thousand. And at the most, in the U.S. and some Western European countries, it could be as high as 1% to 5% of the population. The adverse consequences of maternal alcohol intake during pregnancy on fetal outcome are well-established and well-documented. Nobody argues that. 
But the issue of paternal alcohol consumption and periconceptual sperm defects being passed on to the child just really hasn't gotten the light that it should. Again, we're going to talk about new data published out of our institution, uh, not part of my immediate group, but part of the basic sciences division that really is eye-opening. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But this whole issue of the paternal contribution to FASD has just not really kind of taken off, even though it should. I mean, even back in the 1990s, it was found that alcoholism appears to be linked genetically with the father. Is that wild or what? And studies indicate that male offspring of alcoholic fathers absolutely have behavioral problems and impaired intellectual skills, even when controlled for environmental cues. Now, it's interesting that we can find these articles back in the early 1990s when epigenetics really wasn't a thing. I mean, it was a concept. It was super, super early on in its development. We knew that there were these methylation histone changes to DNA that aren't physical changes to the DNA structure itself, but that there were changes in how the DNA was packaged that would affect gene expression, right? That then became the field of epigenetics. And the field of epigenetics was nowhere back in the 1990s like it is now. But even back then, in the early 1990s, these publications were out there going, hey guys, don't forget about the father's contribution to FASD. It's the mom for sure that's super important, but don't forget the father's contribution. I have fantastic friends at Mayo. It's a fantastic place, obviously, not picking on the Mayo Clinic. But even if you take a look at the Mayo Clinics, right, a leader in the field of medicine, on their webpage under fetal alcohol syndrome, it says, quote, fetal alcohol syndrome is a condition in a child that results from alcohol exposure during the mother's pregnancy. Fetal alcohol syndrome causes brain damage and growth problems, and these issues are not reversible. But do you all catch that little key phrase in there during the mother's pregnancy? And then it goes on to talk about how mothers should restrict their alcohol intake during pregnancy and during the preconception period. And that's absolutely right. There's nothing wrong with that. But it probably would have been a little bit more complete to say, and there's also a contribution to this by the father. And so that's what often gets left out. That's the point I'm trying to make is that when we're doing our preconception evals and we're doing our early pregnancy discussions, that it's not just maternal health, which absolutely is vital, but especially in the preconception period to address issues like substances used in the, in the father, in the husband or the partner, whatever you want to call it, in the sperm donor. How about that before we get in any kind of trouble? Um, into that component because there are epigenetic changes there. There's one of the ABOG current articles that we're reading for MOC has to do with obesity and reproduction. And I don't want to go into that one too much because I don't want to get into that subject. But there is a part in there that says that obesity in males not only affects sperm quantity, right? that's a quantitative issue, but sperm quality, the, the, the sperm just don't function right. You're like, is that weird or what? I mean, I can get that the number, maybe it's a heat issue, a lot of increased BMI, uh, raises uh, scrotal temperature, that, that's easy. But sperm quality is directly linked to epigenetic changes. You see, so it's, yes, maternal health should be optimized before pregnancy, but so should the fathers, so should the health of the sperm donor. So if they're overweight or obese, that needs to get in check. If they're big drinkers, that needs to get in check. So all of these issues aren't just related to the maternal compartment, but there's this other half, remember, this other contribution to pregnancy, which is the male, that obviously cannot be ignored.
I remember years ago when I was talking about something and somehow we were talking about the Mayo Clinic and my daughter who was then, I don't know, must have been maybe 10 or so, it's been a couple of years, uh, said it's called the Mayo Clinic, like mayonnaise, like they have a lot of mayonnaise there. Why do they call it the Mayo Clinic, the mayonnaise clinic? Uh, yeah, I'll never forget that. I don't think I'm ever going to let her forget that. May bring that up at her wedding 20 years from now, let me just say, because she's not getting married anytime soon. The group of authors that we're going to reference here and summarize their latest publication, which was just in April 2023, actually published something similarly on a molecular level back in 2022. That publication was in Scientific Reports, and the physician and his group is Dr. Michael Golding. All right, Dr. Michael Golding. That was published on May 25th, 2022, again in Scientific Reports. And the title of that publication is Alcohol-Induced Increases in Sperm Histone A. H3 lysine 4 trimethylation correlate with increased placental CTCF occupancy and altered developmental programming. Yeah, see, we're clinicians. That's where basic science comes in and adds to clinical medicine. Because when I first read this paper, I was like, huh? I mean, alcohol messes up sperm. That's what I got. All right. But if you break it down to the molecular level, it's epigenetic changes that affects histone function that affect placental function and growth, which leads then to altered fetal development, not just neurodevelopment, but true physical development as well. So crazy wild. Again, thank goodness for basic scientists and people who do lab work. Uh, I'm a clinician. I like and we do plenty of research. We've got plenty of publications. And we're always doing looking for new grants and new ways to contribute. But we do clinical work. So not saying that one is more important than the other. They're on the equal level. They both contribute to medicine. And thank goodness for folks like this because, yeah, increases in histone H3 lysine for trimethylation at the sperm level. Fantastic. I'd rather stick to the bedside. But anyway, Dr. Goldine, thank you so much for your contribution. And this is not his recent study. I'm just trying to lay the foundation that these epigenetic changes have now been proven. And this was published May 25th, 2022. It's this same group of researchers led by Michael Goldine, who's out of Texas A&M University, that's my institution, who just published another study April 2023. This group of researchers has been studying this for quite some time, and it's very fitting and appropriate that they do so because based on statistics, men drink more and are more likely to binge drink than women. This recent publication from last month was in the Journal of Clinical Investigation, and Golding and his team found that male alcohol consumption before conception caused fetal alcohol syndrome brain and facial growth defects. So let's stop there for a minute, because what has been known about fetal alcohol syndrome, of course, mainly has focused on the neurodevelopmental issues and the behavioral aspects, okay, like attention deficit and hyperactivity. And yes, fetal alcohol syndrome has the known facies uh, that we've all come to know that's pathognomonic of the syndrome. However, what this study has now shown is that male contribution to this syndrome isn't just in neurodevelopmental issues, but again, and here's a big clinical pearl, based on the male epigenetic changes to sperm, it can actually lead to true physical changes and abnormalities as well. In other words, it's true craniofacial. It's brain and facial growth abnormalities during early development. 
Now, I have to clarify here, this was not a human trial, all right? This wasn't a prospective study or retrospective. This was in a mouse model. And before you go, oh, man, it's not even in people. Now, wait a minute. There's a lot of similarities here in this embryology, in this development. So it's legit, all right? This kind of model, animal model, has been used to replicate the effects of alcohol exposure. Traditionally, it was done in, in mothers to look how it affects the offspring. But now this is being replicated to check how alcohol in the male affects the offspring in that pregnancy. The aim of this study was to see if there was any differences in craniofacial landmarks, in craniofacial abnormalities between maternal exposure to alcohol, paternal exposure, or dual exposure in the offspring. Well, what they found was, as you could guess, pretty surprising. They found that male exposure to alcohol actually drove certain craniofacial abnormalities in a much stronger relationship than maternal exposures did. These researchers concluded that this programming defect, this programming effect on craniofacial abnormalities came through the sperm and had a profound effect on the organization of the face and the growth of craniofacial features. Because this study identified FAS-related craniofacial differences in the offspring born to those males who regularly consumed alcohol at or more than what is considered the legal limit, the chief author pointed out that both parents should commit to limiting or completely omitting their alcohol consumption while trying to become pregnant. As Goldeen continued in that interview, quote, change the alcohol warning label to remove the maternal emphasis and put it on both parents to say the decision to consume this beverage can have significant life changing consequences to a future child, end quote. See, and he's right. Right now, the warning label only conveys part of the story. So by relating the other half of the story, the male contribution to FAS based on male partner alcohol consumption in the periconception period, we have to give the entire story, which balances out the responsibility because both can contribute to fetal or FAS type of syndromes. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. We have covered brand new data that is really built upon some older literature showing that it's not just the maternal exposure to alcohol that can have detrimental effects to the offspring. Yeah, there is a male responsibility, a male contribution to this as well. So while it's critical that mothers abstain from alcohol during the periconception interval, it's equally as important that the male contribution to this, that the semen donor, if you will, also abide by those same rules. As always, we're thankful for you, and we're glad that you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.